I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I think university is the one of the places that you can learn in the most intense and the most highest level. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I think it's a really important time to kind of figure out what you what you're interested in, what you think you'd enjoy doing as a career. The main idea would be providing research, like developing I guess the younger generation. In May 2023, I moderated a public discussion at the University of Regina that centered on one single question. What are universities for? The one word that comes to my mind is opportunities. I always see university as kind of like a middle link between elementary and how high school kind of is and the dreams you get to be and how crazy things are versus the kind of life you're expected to have as an adult. The discussion was recorded live at Dark Hall in Regina. It featured four experts from institutions of higher education in Canada, the U.S., and New Zealand, each with their own perspective. That's, I think, the primary goal of universities, to be democracy's midwife. So universities are spaces where we tackle these great problems and challenges. Universities are fundamentally conservative. Everyone thinks of them as radical places. I find them very contradictory institutions. I began by asking each panelist to tell me the first thing that comes to mind when asked the question, what is a university for? The first thing that comes to mind is universities as spaces of imagination and possibilities. Melinda Smith is Vice Provost and Associate Vice President, Research, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Calgary. She's also co-editor of The Equity Myth, Racialization and Indigeneity at Canadian Universities. We are in a moment of great uh, social transformation and social polarization that necessarily means thinking through uh, challenges of colonialism, enduring challenges of racism, economic poverty and inequality. And I think, so universities are spaces where we tackle these great problems and challenges, and we do so through, uh, for all students of all backgrounds, we do it through teaching and learning, through research and inquiry, artistic inquiry, we do it through fueling ingenuity and creativity, Um, we do it through innovation, um, trying to enhance the quality of life, trying to enhance the public good, trying to enhance citizenship and belonging. Um, So I think universities have an extraordinary place in our society, in our world, and there's no other institution like them. Jonathan Cole joined us virtually. He's the John Mitchell Mason Professor and Provost and Dean of Faculties Emeritus at Columbia University and has written several books about American higher education, including The Great American University. There are 
three basic functions for universities today, and they are the discovery and the dissemination of knowledge, and that includes our first commitment to teaching and to teaching the new generation of our citizens. It is also for producing research discoveries that will change all of our lives. And then third, I think it's building this, uh, universities are for building citizens with a sense of civic responsibility. A university should also be, and it comes to mind immediately, a place for criticism, a home for criticism of various social practices and of social arrangements. Those who are critics must be protected by the university and by the population of their countries, especially from various forms of political external attacks. Next up, Linda Tuhiwai-Smith. I think universities have multiple purposes that are layered over the years. She's Distinguished Professor at Te Whare Wananga o Wanoi Arangi in New Zealand and the winner of many major awards for her research and contributions to Maori education. She's also the author of the best-selling book Decolonizing Methodologies, Research and Indigenous Peoples. I agree with the previous speakers in terms of the high-order aspirations and visions of what universities represent and try to represent. But also know universities have been places where for hundreds of years they were men's places. They were the places of white men. They were the places of imperialism and colonialism. And while I'd like to think that those years have gone, one of the interesting things about universities is they're not good at letting go of some ideas. They're not good at letting in necessarily new, noisy, radical ideas. That at one level, they are about change, but on another level, they're about the status quo. I find them very contradictory institutions. And for me, as a native person, a Māori from New Zealand, I've spent my career in universities, at war with the university, enjoying the privilege of the university and trying to change the university so that it works better for the communities um, that I come from and that it includes our knowledge and our language and our people. Joel Westheimer is a professor and former university research chair in democracy and education at the University of Ottawa. He's the author of several studies on civic education, including What Kind of Citizen? Joel, I'm going to uh, experiment a bit here and, 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 and ask you a slightly different question, but I think your answer will still work. What is the primary role that universities should play in a healthy democracy? <laughs> I was going to say, Nala, that you know what professors love to do when asked a direct question. They reframe the question. <laughs> so you've reframed the question for me, and that's what I, I do want to speak to, is what are universities for in a democratic society? And I'll tell you the reason I'm saying that. 
Because if you think about universities around the world, uh, in a totalitarian dictatorship, in a religious theocracy, uh, in any form of government around the world, in a democracy, there's going to be some things in common in all those places. All those countries want students to learn mathematics, maybe a foreign language, maybe history. So that makes me think, what should be different in universities in a democratic society than those in, say, a totalitarian dictatorship? Democratic societies have different requirements of their citizens than other forms of government. In democratic societies, we need citizens who actively participate in civic life and who are informed about policies and can make decisions about those policies and weigh in with opinions. We need students who think critically, who ask tough questions about social policies of significance, and who can deal with multiple perspectives. We need those students because we need them to be citizens in a democracy, and that's what democracy requires. The philosopher John Dewey said that uh, democracy must be born anew with every generation, and education is its midwife. That's, I think, the primary goal of universities, to be democracy's midwife. I guess the first question that comes to mind listening to you, uh, Joel, but I will put the question to, to the others, is this ideal of, of a university promoting and providing this education that allows us to be productive members of a democratic society. How did, that, how did universities achieve that aim in the past? Melinda? Well, I'll begin by saying universities didn't start that way. And in fact, many universities were birthed during colonialism. They were birthed in the context of segregation and apartheid. Women weren't allowed to attend, or they were, they were birthed for a particular religious order. And so I think universities historically and today continue to try to be more inclusive to spaces for more and more people in order to enable a more robust and inclusive democracy. And so, but that's always, uh, going back to Linda's point, that's always contentious, right? Uh, because it's contradictory, we want to maintain the status quo, we want to conserve and, and talk about our traditions. On the other hand, those who are trying to change things, transform things, contest the, the prevailing order, uh, the unruly folks, but they are seen and disparaged. So universities are always contradictory spaces and contested spaces of learning and unlearning, but that's also healthy for democracy. Joel, can you come back to you and just and talk about briefly when it does work, how does it work? What does it look like? I think when it's working, universities, universities look like the free exchange, even when it's contentious, of ideas. Mm -hmm. um, we see multiple perspectives being expressed and we see arguments and debates, because it's important for students and for all of us to know that well-meaning people differ on ideas of significance, right? That we can differ and still move forward uh, with making, making decisions about self-governance. Um, when we see universities work, we see students engage not only in their academics, but in the community and bringing community life back to their academics and going back and forth. Um, we see students engaging with each other and forming relationships that are meaningful because community is a large part of what strengthens democratic societies. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those things are, are what we see when we see a healthy university. Yeah. Linda, I wonder if you could explain 
expand a little bit more on, on your opening statement? When, you, when we look at what universities might have done in the past and are doing today to promote democracy and civic participation, who did that, I guess, ideal version serve? Good question. Um, I mean, the simple, easy answer, those who had power anyway. Um, but if we, if we come, say, past second, the Second World War, I think universities did move into greater participation, which you know, many of the old guard thought was a terrible mistake to democratise universities. Um, and the criticism was it was a massification of universities, that you know, the curriculum was going to go to hell, um, standards were going to lower because, you know, that's not what a university should be. It should be much more elite for the very best to promote excellence of ideas, excellence of research. And so these ideas change over time, but they're still present. Um, I'm sure those of you who are faculty have had arguments about what is excellence. I'm sure students who are sitting in their assessments are wondering, what is excellence? How do I get it? The striving for an idea, I think, is one of the best things that you find in a thriving place. It's because everyone is arguing it, talking about it, it's transparent. Sometimes those arguments are heated, but contained within rules of argument. There are rules of argument, and what we learn in a university are those rules and codes, mm -hmm. as well as the content for arguing, for scholarship, for research. Jonathan, if we accept the notion that universities have a role to play in, 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 demo in a democracy and perpetuating democracy, have they kept up? How would you characterize how well they have kept up with the change in today's, let's say, Western democracies? Well, I think they, strangely enough, they've always been leaders and they've also uh, simultaneously been followers. I think the leadership comes, frankly, in the areas of research, which is very rarely talked about uh, when we think about American or, I dare say, Canadian universities and the way in which that research, for example, has been responsible for about 70% of the productivity growth in the United States over the years. We tend to focus on undergraduates and it's, and it's of course understandable that we do. That's what most of us think about. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you look at what universities have produced in the last hundred years by way of discoveries that have altered the lives of people all over the world, from vaccine discoveries, the laser, the technology which we're using right now on this program, and much, much more in the way of biomedical research and the like. But they have not been inclusive, obviously, as we know. When I was a freshman at Columbia College in 1960, there were two people of color in my class, two out of 600 and some odd. Those things have changed gradually with uh, social policies and the will of the colleges, but they still lag behind. 
in many, many ways, especially those who come from economically poor uh, backgrounds who also happen to be people of color. A new study out today shows how college admissions practices benefit the richest applicants. Opportunity Insights, a group of Harvard economists, analyzed data from 12 of the country's top colleges from 1999 to 2015. They found that among students with the same test scores, applicants with families in the top 1% of earners were 34% more likely to be accepted. So um, the university seems to me have got to find new ways of admitting students, being more inclusive rather than exclusive, why should Columbia pride itself on rejecting 95% of the students who apply? Is that something to be proud of? When you know that probably 20 or 30% of the applicants could certainly do the work at Columbia, well, why don't we change our idea of what a meritocracy is? And I agree with other panelists who say that universities are fundamentally conservative. Everyone thinks of them as radical places, they really are fundamentally conservative, and uh, we have to overcome that conservatism. And I think that we're in the middle of a, another phase of evolution that is going to take us to a different place in 30 or 40 years. I, I do want to kind of bring it back to the idea, Joel, of you know universities being these places that uh, are supposed to improve the health of our democracy. If universities were to focus more on civic-minded education, which I'm assuming you're advocating, all of you are, who should be paying for that? It's a public good. Yeah, it's, it's a basic public good, right? They, the, first of all, even broader than that, we've reframed universities now, I'm sure we'll talk about this, as job training institutions. Yes. And that's a very individualized view of the function of a university. It's an emaciated view of the historic ideal of a university. Um, sure, there's no one who doesn't want kids to be able to find meaningful work after university, but that's just where it begins. Mm -hmm. Universities have a role to play towards the public good because we all, it's not just that each of us wants an education, we all have a stake in living in an educated society. And so we don't even have to talk about the civic goals of university. The fact is that a democratic society, really any society, requires um, or is more robust and is better if people are educated. And so it's a public good. So who pays for it? I think we should all pay for it, the public. It's one of the, most, it's one of the best investments we can make. And even on the playing field of investment return, there's tons of research that shows that uh, you know, a better education results in better health outcomes, in better, you know, a million things that we otherwise have to pay for down the line. So even on those terms, which I don't really agree with, but even on those terms, uh, it's a good investment and it's an excellent return. Linda, do you want? Do you, go ahead. <laughs> did, did you want to address that as well, Linda? Your thoughts on that? Who should I, I have a twenty-year-old grandson who's just dropped out of university, um, disengaged from university, mm -hmm. has come to live with us as grandparents while we carefully, sensitively try and help him reset what he wants to do. He doesn't really believe in the university in the way that we did. Mm. He doesn't find anything exciting. 
And when we talked about a career and a job, he's not afraid of hard work, uh, but he doesn't see at the moment that the university is a pathway to that. So it's kind of interesting for us because his father, his grandfather and I are both academics, and so here we have this grandson that we don't quite know how to speak to <laughs> because we've taken it for granted that this is the pathway mm -hmm. to a life, to happiness, to good health, to being able to look after your family, your future grandchildren, our descendants, you know, which in our culture is really important. So he's not buying into any of that at the moment. Yeah. And I, I know it's not just my grandson. I think there's a generation who are in their 20s who've just come through COVID um, who maybe are, are not sold on the idea of a university. Before the public discussion, IDEA's contributor Melissa Gismondi visited the University of Regina campus to check in with students, past, present, and possibly future, about what the purpose of a university means to them. Uh, my name is Ryland Ajkate. Do you mind if I ask how old you are? I am 16. Can you just tell me where we are exactly right now, as best you know? Uh, we are in... Uh, the University of Regina, Saskatchewan. And we are in like a glass box with a piano. And you were playing the piano? Yes, yes I was. I feel like the purpose of university should be about finding what you want to be, who you want to be, and what you want to do for the rest of your life to be successful and happy. To me, university is kind of like a starting point into a new life where you can choose who you want to be. And university is just a stepping stone, you know? Part of the journey? Yeah. Do you have plans to go to university? Have you been? Do you want to go? Um, I'm not too quite sure about that, actually. Um, University, it's just the schoolwork is overcomplicating for me at least because I have more interest in other things which I'd like to take or put more of my time into those instead of putting my whole time into all these other classes like math or history, etc. So university is one way you can sort of figure out who you want to be, but there are lots of other ways. Yeah, there's lots of other ways. For me, I'm thinking about going to university, but I'm not too quite sure about it yet. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed.
Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. There is immense frustration. I would absolutely agree with that sentiment. We live in a university experience where students are working 40 hours a week and taking full-time classes. The average class for domestic, not international students even, but for like domestic students, it's about $1,000. Finances are the biggest reason why people don't go to university because it's so expensive here. According to the most recent data released from Statistics Canada, the average student loan debt for a university graduate is $28,000. And the total amount owed to the federal government is almost $24 billion. With more debt and an ever-tightening job market, it's no surprise that the cost of going to university determines what some students choose to study and how they view the purpose of a university degree. It's hard not to have this, or it's hard to have this conversation without bringing in kind of the elephant in the room, which is the the fact that many students go to university purely to try to get a specific job. That that they see a university as a training ground for a profession, for for that kind of thing. So, given that you're talking about wanting to fuel imagination yeah. and capture people's, you know, young people's uh, imagination, I wonder how you feel about that as educators, knowing that. Maybe Joel and then Linda. Well, first of all, I think that as professors, it's true that universities are terrible ambassadors, and so uh, the, unfortunately, the result of that means that all of us have to not only be concerned about public education, but educating the public. And it's also important to recognize that, you know, a lot of kids want to go just to train for their career, just to get the skills they need. But that's a two-way street. Um, We've kind of lost the discourse of talking about universities as anything else other than job training institutions. So we have to create that language and create that space where students feel free to explore the things that they care about and to develop their own passions. Where did that breakdown happen? Just a, Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, we could talk about broader neoliberal ideology. I don't think that it's only at the university level. Every institution in our society is now subject to talk of standards and accountability and bean counting and value added, and we lose a lot there. I mean, we are living, you know, the post-pandemic kids and even before the pandemic are experiencing an unprecedented level of loneliness and alienation. And so I don't think there's anything more important than bringing young people into a community of ideas and of creative expression where they can be become the best version of themselves. And that's the language that we need to get out there so that students understand what universities can be about for them in addition to preparing them to find meaningful work. I just want to add to that that the, the university's role as job training, and the word training is very important there, Universities have always had the role of giving students the knowledge, skills, and attitudes they need to succeed 
in the workplace in various forms, in various jobs. Training was the purview of the business. They pay you while they're training you for their specific job, and that's what corporations did. They have done a magical act to their benefit of downloading all of that training onto the university. So the fact that we're saddled with this idea of job training is the problem in the first place. Right. <laughs> Linda? I think we have a big problem with undergraduate education. I think it's a sausage machine, um, <laughs> which is disciplining in particular ways, funneling in particular ways, and the, the idea of a good Bachelor of Arts or a, you know, a liberal education at that undergraduate level is kind of being diminished. The issues that young people are concerned about they're not being taught that in their undergraduate curriculum often. They've been taught old crap. You know, it's like, you've got to learn this before you learn that. You've got to learn to do this before you're allowed to do that. And I think both pedagogically and in our curriculum, we have not been ahead of where our students are. We are behind where the generation currently is. We haven't anticipated them. Um, we haven't prepared for their aspirations. We keep telling them this is the way that you will eventually learn, mm -hmm. and you will do it in a sequence, yeah. and you will do a level 100 things first. And they want to do level 100, 300, 200, and a couple of things over there on the side. Um, they don't want to specialise and yet they've been funneled through high schools often into specialisms that take them away from some of the actual things that they will find valuable in life. And so when we have young people who are alienated from each other but are in an institution with thousands of other people, we have a problem. Yeah. But I think it is about fundamentally our undergraduate provisions, the pedagogies that we use. I'm so glad that there's now a technology called Chatbox that can write essays, because hopefully it'll change assessment strategies. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it'll encourage other forms of dialogue in classrooms, mm -hmm. and it'll stop classrooms having 600 students in them. Yeah. So, you know, I think we do need to rethink some of the foundational curriculum that might have served my generation well, but I'm not sure if it's going to serve the next generation well. Joel, you wanted to pick up on that? Yeah, you know, we already brought up one elephant in the room. <laughs> I would like <laughs> to squeeze another elephant in. I think by the end of the evening, we're going to have a menagerie of elephants. <laughs> um, but the elephant I want to talk about is funding. Yeah. And the problem is that students don't have the space to want other things other than to get in, get out quickly, and get a job. And the reason is, is because they're saddled with enormous amount of debt when they leave university, and many cannot even afford to go to university in the first place. I have a radically increased number of students who are working full-time while they're in school. Mm. 
Okay. Just to make that, ends meet. Just to make ends meet. Yeah. That's not a university education. So the funding issue, I think, is it kind of lulls over all of this and, and prevents students from being able to tell us what they want or even to know what they want because this is so claustrophobic for them. Melinda. Yeah. I, I think... Funding is huge, as, uh, along with the fees, um, along with um, debt and concern about debt, and then also in terms of employability. So these things, the combination of these things, I think, constrain the imagination and possibilities about what people want to do. But if you look at what students are actually engaging, the movements they, they are engaging, the, the change they're trying to bring into the world, whether it's around the ecological crisis, whether it's around reproductive rights and freedoms, whether it's around dealing with the big social wicked problems of our time, including social polarization, including the racial reckoning, gender justice, indigenous concerns, about big issues about, around water, this is what people, students are concerned about. This takes time to, to be in a university and to reflect, and yet the fee structure, the funding structure, don't enable it. But is it as simple as, you know, increasing funding to universities would actually somewhat, somehow revert them to their, you know, idealistic goal of being, you know, of providing education for the sake of education? Is it that simple? It, it's... <laughs> <laughs> question is, do you want an enabling environment that enables discovery, that enables uh, ingenuity and creativity? You, we don't know where they will take us, but it may require risk-taking. It, re it may require us doing things differently. And as long as we are so narrowly constrained by we need to, a, a specific kind of education to get a specific kind of job in quickly, the imagination crashes on us. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I do think uh, funding shapes the idea of possibilities unduly. Most of the people like I know, the subject they're studying in university, mm -hmm. they probably choose it because of a high paying job in the future. Does university really like cater to like creativity in like students? And the truth is that maybe before it didn't, but the fact that we're talking about it is already like a step towards the right direction. And like a lot of like universities offer different things that can cater to practicality in like your studies and like help you with like your creativity. So when you think about that question, what what are universities for? What comes to mind? What's the first thing that sort of jumps to your mind? For you to have like uh, a f just a word, yeah. vision. Vision. Yeah, a vision is that you have like a set goal that you're looking towards, and university honestly is one of the ways you can get there. One of the ways. It's not the only way. It's one of the ways you can get there. I want to in the little time that we have left, kind of broaden the conversation a little bit about what the responsibility of universities are to the public at large. And we've sort of touched on it a little bit at the beginning of the conversation. What do you think universities have gotten wrong about their role as a public institution? Melinda, I thought maybe you could tackle that. We forgot the public. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think 
we are part of the societies and communities in which we uh, live. We are members of the communities, and the communities expect their children uh, and grandchildren to come to these institutions. I think, so I think now you see universities returning to this idea of more community engagement, uh, more service learning to try and, to, and try to connect the community. But we're having to do it in a structured way because we were disconnected. We, we forgot the civic purpose of, of, of education. So I actually think we need, and, and I would also say, you know, paradoxically, we were cutting or disappearing the very programs that connected us to this idea of the public civic engagement, university, uh, 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 whether the social sciences and humanities, the creative arts, creative inquiry. So, so if this, this connects to the, the prior question about the kind of uh, uh, technical professionalization of the university at the expense of this larger piece. Mm -hmm. So we are connected to industries and the professions, terrific. We now are just trying to reconnect in a much more meaningful way to the communities we, we, we are with. And I, and I think that's actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. We are in the midst of a great social transformation, great polarization. I mean, that's another elephant in the room, great polarization. We don't just see it in, in the United States, we see it in Canada. The very disciplines that enable us to tackle these great wicked social problems are the ones that are under the most duress. The liberal arts. The liberal mm -hmm. arts. Meaning then, we are diminishing our capacity to respond to one of the greatest social challenges we face. Social polarization, the need for pluralism in a way, how do we live well together? Um, so I think community, connecting to communities will help us with this, will refocus the attention of institutions, but it's long overdue and we have a lot of work to do. It is a very tough looking landscape out there. There is the polarization, there's the climate crisis, misinformation, disinformation, populist threats to democracy. So how, can we, can we talk about what practically that looks like, how a university can help in, I don't know, at least making the conversations possible? Yeah, I, solve I, these problems. I think one of the trends is it needs to be the opposite of where we're going. And of course, public education has to be about education for the public good. Right? And the public good requires some of the things that we've said, being able to deal with multiple perspectives, working on relationships between and among each other, reducing that kind of blind polarization. But for that to happen, Classrooms, in the practical sense, which is what you asked, classrooms have to brim with the passion and creativity that we want to see in the society. But the reason we've gone in the opposite direction is because we're obsessed with standards and accountability. There's nothing wrong with standards. I mean, we all have standards. I've never met a professor who doesn't have standards and, and who doesn't feel accountable to the students and to the university and to the nation. The problem is with the word standardization, which literally means making everything the same. But universities are not McDonald's, and we don't want to Big Mac-a-size all our classrooms, right? The things that make them brim with passion and creativity are local things, what local professors and students are passionate about and feel creative about. And when students are immersed in that kind of eclectic and unpredictable environment, that's when we get the real education for democratic citizenship and the real education that democracies need. Thank you for that. Jonathan, do you want to add something before we move on? Well, uh, a couple of thoughts. I, I think there are many ways in which um, universities 
need to change, um, partly because of the failure of the current system, but more because of the evolution of the society in which they're located. First of all, I think that um, we have to begin to think of universities as global institutions. Uh, we, ha we have responsibilities not only to our own immediate constituencies, but to people in the continent of Africa, in Latin America, and in other places in the world who need education and will, because of technology, may not have the ideal situation of being in, in the classroom or in a seminar room, but it, that will be simulated. We're going to have more pandemics if we don't attend to the education and treatment of people around the world. And I think our universities have fundamentally, up to this point, fallen short in that. I think we tend to focus, and I am guilty of this myself, on elites and elite universities. And we have overlooked the need of the public institutions, the large public institutions, and their fight and the tension that exists between government and universities. We are in the midst, at least in the United States, of attacks on universities, academic freedom and free inquiry. And we don't have the courageous leadership that is solidifying itself and coming together to really defend the university and its purposes against these would-be autocrats. Governor Ron DeSantis today signing three bills all focused on higher education. Two of those bills are directly related to equity, diversity and inclusion, better known as EDI. It effectively bans EDI from Florida colleges and universities. Students walking out of class across the state of Florida. Here at USF, some other main message is thought, diversity and freedom in education. We as the students of this state, the ones who go to these great colleges, right? We care about diversity and our education. We care about engaging with all ideas. Uh, so my name is Holly Funk. I'm a student at University of Regina, have been for several years. I'm in psychology and religious studies there as my departments. And then I work for the Carillon, which is the university's students newspaper. I guess I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what universities are for maybe the ideal the ideal of what universities should be for and then what you see as the reality <laughs> it's a very good question i like the i like the distinction yeah um okay so ideal uh what universities should be for is i guess kind of influencing growth is what i would say and like on the individual level that's really where they should be shining is helping people in the community to figure out what can be better and how can we work together within disciplines or between disciplines to make things better. And then those people, when they graduate, they go out into communities, whether they stay here or they move away, they're supposed to go out and take that growth and expand it further, work with more people, find more collaborations to build on that, to just yeah, keep moving us all forward rather than staying stagnant. I think that growth part is really important, which makes the reality a little disappointing because I don't quite see that as much to be happening. Um, there is a lot of honors and graduate students that I've talked to who feel very alone in their programs, feel very alone in their studies, in their work, like essentially like they're teaching themselves a lot of the things and they kind of have an editor on the other side 
it's not as collaborative. It's not as much of that mentorship that should be here that would really, really amplify the impact that a university could have on the people here and the people that leave to go do things after. It's way more business model now. So there is a lot of focus on like recruitment and getting people into the university, bringing them into programs, but not so much of a focus on while you're here, making that a really, really, really impactful time or what you're going to do when you leave. So if students aren't getting that mentorship, that real sort of engagement, is there frustration at the cost of what this is costing them to essentially be, as you're saying, do a lot of it on their own or feel like they're alone? There is immense frustration. I would absolutely agree with that sentiment. Um, The average class for domestic, not international students even, but for like domestic students, it's about $1,000 for a class right now. And so there are, I mean, there are going to be instructors who are exceptions, who are doing phenomenal jobs and who absolutely more than put in the work to help out every single student that comes into their course. There are many others that really couldn't give a damn and they are going through the motions, they are checking the boxes and kind of treating this just like a job more than like a mentorship opportunity and the chance to change people's lives Every single course, every single person you encounter, they are passing that up. It's a lot of work, to be fair. It is a lot of work to be that invested and focus your attention on people like that. But it's what makes a difference. Have you had an experience with a class, and maybe you could describe it to me, where something fundamental and sort of how you thought about life or the world or something big really shifted for you? Like an example of that kind of growth that you're really talking about. Ooh. Um, actually, yeah. I took a journalism course on ethics and responsibilities and rights. And the professor who was teaching it, the instructor, Bridget Keating, completely shifted over her plan for a lecture on one day because news came out about Colin Thatcher. Invited by MLA Lyle Stewart, Colin Thatcher, a former politician who served more than two decades in prison for the first-degree murder of his ex-wife, was in attendance for the throne speech. He was released in 2006 and continues to proclaim his innocence. Now this morning, And there was just community outrage that came out about this. And so this instructor flipped over the class schedule and we started looking into the way that media covered that story in real time, the story that had just happened that week. And she moved from there to looking at, like, she got the whole class to start investigating resources that people who suffer intimate partner violence have to work with in Saskatchewan. So we were actually practically looking at what are the resources out there? What are the tools people have to work with? What should we as journalists be trying to expand or trying to raise awareness on? First off, what are the tools that are there that people can use? And what is really not out there as a resource? Where are the major gaps? And so it was really, really good practical engagement with like, this is what this job is. This is what we're supposed to be doing. It wasn't just a lecture from the front of the class. It wasn't just all theory. It was practice. And so that, I think, 
is where instructors really shine is when they can get students in the practice of something, not just the theory of it. Really what I took away from it was that it's very easy for a person to focus on their rights and that's in or out of journalism, in or out of university or jobs or anywhere. It's very easy for people to focus on what their own rights are, but not so much what their responsibilities are. And that was a very, that's a core life lesson to be taking away from something like that. That's a really important thing. And there's lessons like that you can learn from any department you're in if you're in there trying to grow as a person, not just set yourself up for a job later. Both faculty and students agree there's a need for universities to innovate. And as to what universities might look like 40 years from now, that's the subject of panelist Jonathan Cole's next book. So I asked each panelist to tell me what they'd like to see in the University of 2063. So Jonathan, maybe starting with you. I would like to see a multidisciplinary, diverse culture that includes academic leagues, which combines the ideas and imaginations of people in multiple universities, offering opportunities to students and faculty members to discuss ideas, to develop ideas, and to disseminate those ideas for the public good. I would like it to become less elitist, less focused on the elite institutions, and more open to the discovery of practical knowledge that will serve local communities, nations, and the larger world uh, that we live in. Thank you, Jonathan Linda. I'd like to think that in the future, teachers are still human beings, and you're not taught by machines, that students are human beings and are not machines, that classrooms are places of human interactions, that universities are places also of social interactions and not just learning. I would also like to imagine that the places that universities occupy, the environments that they occupy, are environments that are biologically diverse, that are sustainable, that enable learners, teachers, students to understand what it means to live in relation to the environment, um, to live respectfully on the lands, to live respectfully with the waters, I'd like to believe we can drink water from rivers, from waterways and from lakes. Um, I'd like to believe that we can still grow our own food and that our supply chains of food are controlled by humans. I read a lot of science fiction. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm also involved in some AI research. Um, So, you know, the world is changing in lots of different ways. But to me, universities are human places, social places, and I'd like to see that continue. Thank you very much. And Melinda? 40 years from now, I would 
like for the university, and no surprise to many in the room, to be more equitable, to be more diverse, inclusive, and decolonial space. I also want to think of, rather than a university, think of a pluri-university, where we welcome a diverse curriculum and diverse knowledges from around the world, and also where we have um, different ways of knowing and thinking and being. Um, and so, uh, so that, to me, would be the university of the future. This also means then the university of the future has to get rid of this idea, or the society of the future, this idea of bringing in this multiplicity to Canada and then wasting that talent without recognizing foreign credential, without recognizing foreign experiences. But the very idea of foreign needs to be troubled because some foreign are welcome, and some foreign are marginalized and impoverished. So the university of the future has to be better able, and society of the future has to be better able to uh, use this, turn this brain drain, because you're taking talent and wasting it, into a brain gain for the public good. Joel. The educator Maxine Green once said, the purpose of education is to comfort the troubled and trouble the comfortable. And I think that's a wonderful sort of guiding schema for what I'd like to see in universities in the future. Of course, they have to be places where we comfort the troubled, where we welcome a diverse student body, where we keep them free from bullying, where they're allowed to make mistakes and fail and still have productive educations. But if we stop there, that's not enough. I think that we also need to teach students that there are problems in the world. We need to trouble the comfortable and tell them that not only are there problems in the world, but that they are the ones charged with participating in the idea of finding solutions to those problems. You are listening to Ideas and to a special panel discussion called What Are Universities For? featuring Joel Westheimer right at the end there. You also heard Linda Tohiwai Smith, Jonathan Cole, and Melinda Smith. The discussion was recorded at Dark Hall in Regina, Saskatchewan in May 2023. Special thanks to Mark Spooner and to Whitney Blaisdell and Alex Usher. Thanks also to Holly Funk and all the other students and sessional lecturers at the University of Regina who shared their insights. Now we want to hear from you. What do you think universities are for? Email us at ideas at cbc.ca. This episode was produced by Melissa Gismondi. Lisa Ayuso is our web producer. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Chris Haynes. Thanks also to Chris Jackson. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.